Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hi everybody, David Ornstein here, football correspondent for The Athletic. Thank you very much for joining us, but since recording the pod, we have broken a massive story as our understanding that Liverpool's owners, Fenway Sports Group, have put the club up for sale. It's believed they've distributed a full sales presentation to interested parties and also contracted the services of the banks Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan to assist in what they describe as an evaluation process. That means it's not clear if a deal is going to be done or that this is merely an exploratory exercise and a testing of the water. We'll have to wait and see on that front. But they have released a statement to us admitting that under the right terms and conditions, they would consider new shareholders if it was in the best interest of Liverpool. And in the meantime, they have reiterated their commitment to the club on and off the pitch. This is a fascinating situation that we're going to keep you fully abreast of across the athletic for the days, weeks, months and maybe even years ahead. Now, let's get on with the pod. The Athletic. In the Premier League this weekend, Aston Villa's new manager, Unai Emery, got off to a good start as they beat Manchester United. The Wolves were beaten again, but they have also now got a new manager in Julian Lopetegui. So now Southampton have decided to spin the wheel and sack Ralph Hasenhutl. What has gone wrong at St Mary's and who will they turn to next? I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Well, we're joined uh, by the Athletics' Adam Crafton. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, Here to to make disappear all the listeners that you've gained over the last six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I thought thought you'd gone so big time that you'd you'd left us behind, really. Although, a little bit later on, we will uh, plug your own brand new podcast, which you appear to be doing on your own without any, any of us. Well, to be fair, when I've been doing some Five Live stuff over the last few weeks and you've not been there, I thought, I, I thought, I thought it was like some sort of, some sort of counter-protest um, against, against me being missing from here. Uh, so Adam is with us. We'll talk about his new podcast a little bit later. Uh, but the main story on this pod uh, comes from our Southampton writer, Jacob Tanswell, who was at St Mary's yesterday to see Ralph Hasenhutl's side uh, beaten 4-1. Um, just to put this in, in context for people listening, we're recording this on Monday morning, so it's not official at the moment, but by the time this is listened to by people, it probably will be official. Yes, we've had you know discussions with various people inside the club, various people with close ties um, to the dressing room that this has been on the cards for a long, long time. Um, I think ever since the 2-1 defeat at home to Everton, what, over a month ago now, um, the plan was always just to muddle through to the World Cup. Um, they've got to a point uh, just before the Bournemouth game where if he didn't win that game, he would have been sacked uh, maybe that evening or the next morning. But once they won that game, I think the plan was always to muddle through to the World Cup. 
But the man of defeat against Newcastle, where all the problems just boil to the surface, really probably accelerated the change. And, you know, we're just waiting for official confirmation now. He he feels, Adam, Ralph Hasenhutl, that... I mean, Jacob goes back as far as Everton. You could argue the majority of this season, he's been in that position that we see so many times of his career being based on every, one single game. He, each one goes well, he's staying. Doesn't go well, there's every chance he's off. Yeah, but but equally, I mean, actually, if you look at the results they've had, it's only really, I know obviously the Newcastle one's a bad one. They lost 4-0 against Man City and 4-1 against Spurs. But other than that, every game, they've, they've always been in the game. It's only ever been a goal either way. So I think it's been hard to argue that you know, he's completely lost control of the dressing room, that the players aren't producing performances. I mean, from the outside, it looks like they had a huge turnover of players in the summer, a huge change of philosophy in terms of their recruitment. And if they had doubts about him, then why didn't they do it in the summer and get a manager in that sort of fully believed in that project? You, I mean, there's so much to unpick with Southampton. Let, let's deal with the transfer policy first of all, shall we, Jacob? Because you, you made the point uh, on social media after the game yesterday that Hassan Hootel has been let down by the club's failure to sign a striker this summer and that Hassan Hootel's best periods came with Breuer or Ings when they were at their best. We'll come on to the deeper issues that you talk about in a moment. But for a very long time, this is a football club who've been relying on Che Adams or Adam Armstrong to get the goals, to get them out of trouble. They had a better XG than Newcastle yesterday. They had more shots than Newcastle yesterday. But Jacob, it does come down to, a lot of it comes down to the striker. Yes, I think that's one of the big regrets of Ralph Hasenhutl's tenure, really, because he has overachieved at the club. But it's always that nagging feeling that if he just had a little bit more of, of the funds available, a few more resources, you know, it's easy to forget that Sport Republic only came in, this is their first summer, and this is the, the only time where Slamton have had a positive net spend. They've always had to sell to buy. And the striker was the biggest issue. They've signed 10 players, they've completely revamped the squads. The old guard's gone out, Nathan Redmond, Jan Bednarik, Jack Stevens, and they wanted that striker. Uh, Ralph Harsintel said to me 30 days before the window that they were definitely going to sign a striker. So the fact they didn't was an abject failure, really. Of course, we all know they wanted Cody Gakpo. That would have been superb. I think he would have really given Harsintel and Slamton a lift, would have taken the pressure off Harsintel, but they didn't get him. And then you see that front four that you know functioned yesterday or tried to function yesterday. Uh, Thea Walcott, who hasn't started since Box Day last year, who's been out the plans, who Slamton wanted to sell. Um, he couldn't even get on a pitch last week when they were losing 1-0 away to Crystal Palace and now all of a sudden he's being trusted to to start a game because they're so desperate for for strikers so it is that issue I think Slams have never been the most freewheeling going forward under Harsnetal but they've always relied on a clinical striker their best period came at at the end of that 2019-2020 season and overlapping the next season with Danny Ings at his his best and Slams could press high they could win the balls and they'd have a striker up top who would finish those uh, those chances the fact they haven't Che Adams you know he's feast or famine with him when he's good Slams tend to be good Um, so the fact they're relying on him is quite worrying and I think if you look at that front line is arguably the worst you know, technically in the Premier League. So yeah, a lot has gone against Arsenal at all. In terms of the players who are there, because obviously a lot of young players were recruited in the summer, do, have they enjoyed working with Hassan Hutel this season? Has there been feedback from the players to the board? Has there been that kind of dialogue that we often hear about at clubs where 
uh, I suppose players are talking to the board and making clear that they're not not very happy. What, what's what's been the what's been going on in the dressing room? I think the young players are the ones that have been standing by Harsnett all because, for example, Armel Bella Kotchap, uh, Ralph's been talking to him for a long, long time. You know, before the summer, he talked, he detailed, you know, how he'd be part of the plans, how he'd be used, and I think having that trust in the likes of Bella Kotchap and Romeo Lavia, who he has basically built the team around. I think everyone around the club says that without him, Slamton are certainly more direct. And he's 18 years old and he had never started in the Premier League. Um, so Harsnett does give trust to these young players and they appreciate that. Uh, one of the worries uh, going into the season that was put to me um, by a few people was they haven't got the experience to nurture these youth players. James Ward-Prowse is 27, but it carries so much of the burden. And the only other experienced players at the time was Oriol Romeu. And he departed on deadline day. So these young players are coming in, uh, you know, full of energy, endeavour. They're going to be trusted but they're being hamstrung uh, by the lack of experience around them. So um, the young players certainly uh, like Hasenhutl, they appreciate him, uh, but that can't be said for the rest of the dressing room. So does Hasenhutl struggle with experienced players? He's struggled with people who have challenged his authority. It's always been his way or the highway in some respects. Um, He's not had an assistant manager for three years, which until this summer, which is bizarre. Um, So when older experienced players do approach him do challenge him I think he takes exception I think you saw Nathan Redmond's interview on the Athletic uh, a couple of days ago he um, he noticed that and uh, mentioned a, a similar comments so yeah I think he prefers young players he's always preferred signing players under the age of 24 and I think that's one of the reasons because he's so headstrong and he's refused really to be challenged Is that why the owners uh, the ownership group decided to completely change his coaching staff in the summer because that's one of the more I mean that is one of the more bizarre moves I think I can't recall I mean Adam may correct me but I can't recall that happening at a, a club before as soon as you saw that anyone who's sort of been been kind of doing what we do for, for a while would just been looking at that and thinking he's in trouble yeah right if, if the if the board are taking a decision to you know, to give him more tools because they don't maybe feel that they were there before, then they clearly didn't 100% trust the job that he was doing and felt that he needed he needed more. You know, I remember at the time, what Jake, what was the name of the assistant coach that, that they hired? Uh, Ruben Sellers. Ruben Sellers. I remember at the time, like, agents messaging me saying, oh, Ruben Sellers will be the manager within a couple of months. Um, that was the that was the impression that it gave to the industry, whether whether that's right or wrong. And if we're thinking that, then I imagine some of the players must have been thinking it as well. Yes, for sure. I think that they realised that you know Ralph did have that autonomy that he once had because remember he was in charge of organising and creating academy sessions. He had so much power; he was omnipresent around the club. And in the summer, I think there was it was clear that they made concerted efforts to you know wrestle some of that power away from him. So when he did leave, it would have leave such a big hole. Um, and I've always found this a bit jarring that they've tried to re-energise an environment that was being, becoming stale under his watch. And they've tried to change everything around him apart from the manager. And when you change everything like that, you've had Ruben Sellers who comes in, who they really wanted to lead most of the training sessions in pre-season. And he did until the you know competitive games kicked in and Harzenet took charge again. So there was that power struggle there. It has been difficult for Ralph and for a guy like him, he's so headstrong, he likes to be so dominant. Having new coaches in pointed externally and not from Sport Republic or from Sport Republic is difficult. That's why I was going to make the point to you both actually is... He's evidently made some mistakes. There's evidently communication breakdown, as you've highlighted, Jacob, with with some of the players. But in his tenure, even over the last two years, 
The people above him have changed. The people under him have changed. And his squad has changed. And it, and it feels like he hasn't had any control over any of those three things. So there is an element of the individual here being <laughs> slightly bewildered and surrounded by change whilst trying to keep a club in the Premier League. I'm not making excuses for him. The problem is, is that the football operations have always been ran by him and Martin Simmons, who's still there now. So he has had a large degree of control. Um, the players that have left, you know, he's he's had a say, he's had his input. So he's controlled that largely. You know, the old ownership, they never got in charge. Uh, they were never in control of anything to do with on-field matters or football operations. It's always been him. And one thing that people forget is the director of football, Matt Crocker, has had basically no say in any of this. Hasnittles had all the control. And I felt, felt like Crocker's been marginalised. And that's the feeling around the club. Hasnittles has been overseeing matters that don't really concern him or aren't in his job remit. So he has had a lot of say. And he's been... Uh, an influence in all of these changes. So it's not like he hasn't seen these coming or he's been blindsided. So Matt Crocker is, a di- is the director of football? Yes. Right. But who's the guy that signed all the players from Manchester City who's now gone to Chelsea? Has he gone to Chelsea? Yes. Yeah, so it's a very, at the moment, it's a very convoluted process. I, I, I apologise. Yeah. Can I just say, I apologise that I sound quite uninformed no. about this, but, but, it is, but, but it also highlights that there are an awful lot of characters in this. You've got a number of key figures, and it's very difficult to have a streamlined process. You've got Rasmus Ankerson, who's the code founder, who is responsible for hiring, for leading football operations, overarching uh, purpose. And he was the anyway. he was the technical sporting director at Brentford. Yes, correct. So but, yeah, but he doesn't have that role at Southampton. No, but from what you hear, is he does have the overarching influence and this is where it becomes so tricky because you then have Matt Crocker who's been there since start of 2020 I believe who's supposed to you know lead everything from the ground up uh, women's football academy football uh, basically come up with the whole entire strategy and he's not really had a say because Ralph's been organising the academy he's been the one that's been trying to implement the structure in the team and then Joe Shields comes in in the summer who's head of recruitment so he's the one in charge of signing the players to fit the model so there's so many players that or so many figures inside the club that have basically been doing the same job and they've been stepping on each other's toes so when the decision did come in the summer to whether hire or uh, to keep or sack Harson at all, there was a number of figures that had their voice listened to, and there wasn't one guy that would say, "Right, I'm going to make the decision." You know, it, the boardroom was split, so that's caused indecision, and that's the reason why Harson at all has been basically just limping on until November, uh, when the decision would have been made if it was a more streamlined process in the summer. And therefore, when you, I suppose, when you hear all, uh, Joe Shields has now gone, yes. Yes, he's gone to Chelsea, but he's on guarding leave until February and he's been banned from the Staplewood. So that's still going on. Which is why, if we go back to probably Jacob's first answer, Adam, you can understand a little bit why they're trying to muddle through. You can. At the same time, they've got to keep a club in the division. They've just acquired that club. Um, Mm. And we don't really know, you know, what will be, what would be the economic consequences for Southampton of going down. Clearly, they they made a long-term bet with with the recruitment that they did and you know, I think on a lot of a lot of those deals, they will make a profit. You know, you look at the performances of uh, Bella Kutchuk before his injuries. You look at Romeo Lavia. I mean, one of the most extraordinary stories of the summer transfer window was Southampton signing Romeo Lavia and then him having a brilliant game against Chelsea, and then Chelsea offering like what was it like fifty million quid or something for mm-hmm. for this player based on about five senior games performances. But anyway, Chelsea now have um, 
about six recruitment people that, that will fix all of those issues. I think the interesting thing with Southampton is, I mean, I, m- I remember, I think it was Martin Simmons speaking, I think it was speaking to you, Chappers, uh, probably around January when Southampton were going quite well and talking about how, you know, even Ralph Hasenhuttle, because the club was so harmonious, is involved in discussions about, you know, next managers who might work um, in terms of taking on the next job, that they're quite open and honest as a club about, you know, one day Ralph Hasenhutl may leave because he's doing really well and someone might poach it. Now, clearly we're in a very, very different position now. But I'm interested, Jacob, since the takeover, whether that dynamic has changed, whether, you know, that relationship, which seemed very, very strong and Hasenhutl kind of designing the present and future of the club has changed. And also, who do they want? Who, what kind of manager do they want to, to replace him? The issue and almost one of the positives as well between uh, having only Martin Simmons and Ralph in charge was that every, they knew where they stood. Ha- Simmons, you know, was so loyal to Hasenhutl. I remember after the 9-0 at Leicester, Hasenhutl was in his room. He thought that was it. And Simmons stuck by him uh, even after the Man United 9-0. And those two basically oversaw everything. They had the power. They gave the final say in everything. And Sport Republic came in, um, especially in ownership. That's like Sport Republic, where you have Rasmus Ankersen, who's got a football background, who's got previous of controlling, influencing clubs. It was natural that they would want a bigger say in things. So the dynamics have shifted. and But they're still, in terms of the philosophy, it's largely cinema, similar to what it was. They want a young, they want a progressive manager. They want a manager that's going to implement high press and structure because this club this team have been built around this they've turned down a number of players that are technically better than what they've got but they don't press Michael Elise Eberichi Eze they've all looked at but they didn't press or they didn't or they weren't seen to press so uh, it's really important that the next manager comes in basically has a similar style to Arsenal at its best and can get the best out of these players because if they don't stay up then all these players like Bella Kotchap, Lavia, their sell-on value is going to be not. And Slamson are relying on basically uh, basically profit from these two main figures um, to continue to sustain this business and sustain this football operations because Sport Republic put £75 million in to the club. And it's so, so important that they get a return on that. And they want the club to be sustainable. They're not going to keep doing this every summer. So staying in the Premier League is a must. So they need the results immediately. And the new manager must be seen to do that. Is it somebody fresh, um, without maybe without Premier League experience, but has done well elsewhere? They are looking at a number of managers. Uh, they've been interested in Thomas Frank. They've been interested in Roberto De Zerbi before he went to Brighton. They're admirers of Bruno Large before he went to Wolves. So they've been looking at a number of managers for the last 12 to 18 months. The one they're looking at currently is Nathan Jones from Luton. He will be a surprise decision given his experience at Stoke, but he's done a superb job at Luton, hasn't he? So it will be a bit outside the box but Southampton have shown history of thinking outside the box so it could prove difference very quickly because I know you've just received a text saying that he has been sacked so you better go and you better go do some do, do some digging on that finally when when they're good they're very good Southampton I cre- the, the performance away at Tottenham last season they were absolutely fantastic when they're bad they are incredibly bad off the top of my head, I can't think of a team that goes to such extremities within the Premier League, to be honest. No, and I think that's the story of Harsenitl's tenure. Um, Slams fans have always accepted that because when they're at their best, they're so intoxicating to watch, they're so entertaining. But one of the, the issues now is that they're largely where they should be, where Slams fans probably expect them to be. 
but all that all the best parts of Hearthstone at all have gone you know he's not the same animated character they don't press on the front foot anymore they're not exciting they sit back and it's almost like he's been he's had too many bumps on the head now he seems like he's completely decided to go completely safety first and lose all that risk that you know reason why supporters fell in love with him so it's been a four years where there's gonna be fond memories he's largely overachieved but all cycles come to an end and i think supporters realize that and it's it's mirrored through how they play and the style of play now right go 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 thank you jacob cheers guys and final one to you adam uh, on this and and it goes back to to what jacob said there he did reinvigorate them when he took over didn't he because they were desperately looking for a manager who could connect with the fans yeah i mean he replaced mark hughes right yeah and, and they were Southampton that year were really on the brink of of, of, of uh, going down. I once had Mark Hughes as a guest on something, and I said, and we were di- we were discussing Southampton. It may have been a match of the day too, and I said to Mark, "Oh, he did reinvigorate Southampton, did he?" And he said, "Yeah, thanks very much for that. He took over from me." <laughs> so I always I always remember that he did take over from Mark Hughes. But no, you're t- you're totally right, and and I think he kind of not only did he reinvigorate the team, but I think he gave the club a sense of purpose again. Because if you remember back to after sort of Pochettino, Komen, uh, they then had like a couple of, of really difficult years where, you know, having having overseen some brilliant recruitment in those Pochettino and Komen years, that model stopped working. They stopped getting it right. And it left them really on the brink of relegation. And he he, he kind of, um, yeah, I think reinvigorate is, is the right word. And he brought, you know, often if you'd looked at the Southampton starting lineup while he's been there, it's never looked that strong, right? It's never been a team that mm. on paper you would look at and think, yeah, they're, they're definitely going to be mid-table this season. They're going to they're they're be all right and they're going to be able to beat a few of the big teams along the way. But but they've always managed to do that under him. So he's one of those managers that probably a year, a year or so ago we'd have been saying, oh, Tottenham maybe could look at him or Everton could look at him or Aston Villa, maybe Newcastle, you know, those kind of upwardly mobile Premier League clubs now all of a sudden after a year he becomes oh the guy who didn't end very well at Southampton but I expect that he'd, he'll, he'll get another opportunity somewhere pretty soon uh, let's move on this is the Athletic Football Podcast Hi I'm Adam Crafton and I'm the host of the Athletic's new documentary series Away From Home we've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage they've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb, you never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. So that is uh, Adam's brand new podcast, Away From Home. The first three episodes have dropped today. Uh, Adam, you're basically with Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League campaign, um, whilst their country uh, was and still is uh, being invaded by Russia. This must have brought all sorts of emotions to you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been very, very heavy. Um, Also incredibly kind of uplifting and moving at different times because if anyone saw any of Shakhtar during their Champions League group and they were in a group with Real Madrid and Celtic and Red Bull Leipzig, the amazing thing was we've kind of known Shakhtar over the years as 
this club that brings in a lot of Brazilian players, players like Willian and Fred and Fernandinho, and then sell, sells them on. And this summer, they lost all of their foreign players who understandably didn't want to stay in a war-torn country. So as a result, Shakhtar went into this with, you know, they played against Real Madrid with 10 Ukrainians in their starting lineup, um, about eight of them from their academy, seven of them, I think, aged 23 or below, started to realise you're sort of following this young band of brothers, um, many of whom have friends on the front line, family on the front line, who, as you heard in the trailer, one of their players, his father-in-law was killed um, at the start of the war. Um, so there was a lot of incredibly emotional moments to it. And also, I don't know if you remember, in the middle of October when the Crimea Bridge, there was the explosion there, um, that was about two or three days before they played Real Madrid at home in the Champions League. And I was at the team hotel the morning before the game, which was when Putin launched his like retaliatory strikes into Kiev, which was the first time for about five months that the capital of Kiev came under massive fire. And... I remember that morning going into the team hotel at breakfast and you see all these players and they're all, they all just had their heads in their phones, messaging their families, calling their families, basically just checking that the people they love were alive. And then I remember the head coach saying to me, like, you know, have you seen the news this morning? And I was like, yeah, obviously it's very, very bad. And, and he said, and now like, I'm expected to get this team ready to play Real Madrid tomorrow. Like what, what the hell? <laughs> and I remember him just sort of walking off and muttering impossible, impossible, impossible. And then they went the next day within about 10 seconds of beating Real Madrid. I often borrowed the quote, and I can't remember who, who said the quote now, but I often borrowed the quote uh, around difficult times, serious times, that sport is the most important of the least important things. And therefore, I wonder, as you, as you observe them maybe in those... 24 hours, 36 hours between the bridge being blown up and then them playing Real Madrid, whether they did find it um, not easy, but uh, some kind of comfort just to switch into football mode. 100%. And it can sound a bit trite, you know, to start talking about, you know, at at that moment, start talking about Champions League games and, and things like that. But it was they who kept saying, you know, it's, the football is crucial for us. It's the thing that... You know, I remember their captain, Tara Stepanenko, saying to me, you know, I have friends who are brilliant soldiers, who know how to use the rifle, who know how to do AI and computer intelligence and uh, and do, I suppose, the cyber war and all of that kind of stuff. He's like, what I can do, what I'm good at, is I'm good at playing football. And in in this moment, there is a very powerful and unifying visibility to Shakhtar as an almost entirely Ukrainian team, almost going on the road and showing the best of Ukrainian talent from a sporting point of view. And I think that's the way they saw themselves as a symbol, an emblem of Ukrainian sporting prowess at that moment, of resilience, of showing, you know, we're we're not just here, but we're here to compete, that we're going to go on, that just because someone has decided to invade our country, we're going to show that we still you know, we still exist. Um, and, that, and that was a really, a really powerful thing. At the same time, there's, you know, there's some real stark realities to it. You know, for, um, I worked on this with my colleague, Joey Durso, and he went to, to, to Croatia where, for example, because obviously Shakhtar have an academy like most European football clubs, and they moved about 100 kids at the start of the war out of Ukraine into Croatia. 
uh, to split because their director of football, Dario Serna, um, Croat, former Croatia international, um, had contacts at Hadjuk Split. And Joey went to see, see these sort of teenage boys. And on the one hand, they're away from home. And I say, I mean that in a positive way. They're kind of friends yeah. together away from home in Split, gorgeous place, kind of place I want to go on holiday, to be honest. They've got food provided. They've got a hotel provided. You know, some of them are getting towards, um, towards an age where they might even enjoy Split's nightlife. On the other side of that, you know, they don't. Re- a lot of them don't really speak English or Croatian. Um, they miss their family. They're FaceTiming their dad on the front line in army uniform. Some of those, some of those scenes, some of those clips are just incredibly powerful. I think, think we've actually got one. Hello, my name is Nazar. I live in Kiev. My favorite football player is Karalas Puyol. On the football field, I play centre-back. In the split, I like fact that here we have the opportunity to play football. People in Croatian are kind and helpful. I miss my parents and our academy. I really want to go back to Ukraine. I talk to my friends and parents every day. When the war started, we all woke up very early and no one understood anything. Everyone had a panic. Then we were in our bunker and we were all taken out a week later in Croatia. I'm very happy that Shakhtar reached the Champions League. I wish them good luck. So that's one of the young players in Split talking to Joey Derso. Just going to play you another clip here and Adam's reference, Dario Serna, the club's sporting director. And we also, as you know, at the start of this, spoke about preparing that team to face Real Madrid on the back of the attack on the bridge to Crimea and the subsequent retaliation with the bombings in Kyiv. So here is the club sporting director, Dario Serna. This fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that. We will not stop to play. We'll play and we'll win. I wonder, Adam, whether... We talked about the, the, the most important of the least important things. Was there... For some of them, there must be a real dilemma as well that, that, that they are playing football whilst other men of their age and friends are fighting for their country the guilt to a certain extent yeah so maybe yeah i mean oh, god knows i've no idea i've never been unfortunately i've never been in this position but I, I would imagine there might be an element of that for some of them depending on their characters yeah and actually what's quite interesting is a, a couple of their players at the start of the war for example their left back victor kornienko went into what what's called the territorial defense which is almost like they wear army uniform but they're like volunteers that would be helping villages with humanitarian assistance, transferring medicine and food and all of that kind of thing. So at the start of the war, several of the players were, you know, wearing army uniform every day and uh, and being very involved. And I think what's happened is the decision was in some ways taken out of their hands because it was a, it was a government decision in the summer to bring back Ukrainian football. So while the Champions League's been going on and, and Shakhtar being playing the European games in Warsaw, the Ukrainian Premier League has returned. And those games have been played in Ukraine. That's what's made it even more difficult for them from the Champions League point of view because they've had to travel in and out of the country and obviously there's no commercial flights at the moment. So they've had to drive often eight to ten hours, be held at the border. There was no kind of like VIP lane for them to be held, you know, two hours, three hours. On one occasion, I think it was five or six. On the, the weekend before they played Leipzig in their final decisive game of the Champions League group stage, they played against Alexandria 
in Lviv, in the west of Ukraine, uh, in the Ukrainian Premier League. And, and that match was suspended for about an hour and a half because of an air raid siren, right? So it, the whole thing has just been completely surreal. But it also starts to become quite normal. That, that's the... That's the really weird bit of it. Because that's my final thing in all of this, that the surreal and the normal sort of meet in this this young superstar that they've got, Mikhailo Mudrik, who I was doing something last week with a, with a, a journalist and he's been linked with like 85 million euro moves. I mean, so they've got this going on within their camp against the backdrop of everything that's happening in their country. Yeah, and, and he is... He's seriously special. Obviously, I saw kind of all six games, and you're never quite sure before you you know you hear about someone and you think, oh, how good can he be? And he's a he's a left one of those kind of left forwards of a of a forward three, very very striking, blonde hair, working a lot in that he's going through like one of those you know you know like when Ronaldo and Bale started to bulk up, and you sort of really saw that physical change in a player. Very powerful shot, very fast, exciting to watch. And on the one hand, it's probably the worst moment of his life because, you know, the area where he grew up, Kharkiv, has become almost like a byword for terror over the last six months or so. But at the same time, he is about to get the move of his dreams. It might be in January, it might be in the summer. It's true that Arsenal, Manchester City are watching Mudrik very, very closely. At the same time, Shakhtar are very, very clear in terms of saying the market is deciding the price. And what they argue is, well, we're talking about a, fo- a forward on the left of a front three. Well, OK, well, let's look at what did Manchester United pay for Jadon Sancho? What did Manchester City pay for Jack Grealish? What did Manchester United pay for Anthony? And they're talking about, you know, they're, they're now talking figures of around 100 million euros for this player. What was funny during the group stages, every time I would speak to the CEO or the director of football, that value would shoot up about 10 or 15 million from game week to game week based on what he'd done the week before. So I think some of it is a little bit performative um, in terms of some of the valuations that they're speaking of. I would expect the valuation may be kind of 70-ish in euros, which is still obviously would be a record for a Ukrainian player. I think they do have a lot of interest in January. I think clubs, as I said, City, Arsenal, I think Newcastle, a club that have watched him very closely as well. At the same time, I think Shakhtar are very conscious that, you know, they're they're still in the Europa League for the second half of the season and they want to make an impression in that. And I think they would prefer probably to keep him until the summer, make sure they win their title, get in the Champions League again next season and go from there. The other challenge that they have is if you get 70 million, what do you spend it on? Because it's very difficult at the moment to recruit foreign players. So you're having to look at kind of a lot of talent within Ukraine and the flip side of that is, OK, if you don't spend it on players, then you'd ordinarily spend it on academy infrastructure or things like that. But Shakhtar haven't played in Donetsk since 2014. That's where their facilities are. Right? So where, when you talk about investment in academy and young players, where is this investment? Where is this infrastructure? So th- those are the big questions for them kind of going forwards. And also just from a football point of view, they, are, they would be a far weaker team without Mudrick in it. Uh, the first three episodes of Adam's podcast, Away From Home, are live now on The Athletic. They're also on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then the final three episodes will drop on the 14th of November. Right, that's it. If you go to The Athletic, you can subscribe for just a pound a month for the first six months. Uh, the address, theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.